Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Welcome to this much needed episode of the Talking DLD podcast. As a clinician, families often ask me for recommendations on how to tell their child that they have DLD. To answer this complex question, I've called in the creators of the DLD and Me book and program, Anna Salvitz and Amanda Finer. So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm really excited to welcome Amanda Finer and Anna Salvitz to the podcast. And I think I've pronounced your names correctly, haven't I? Thumbs up. Yeah. Well done. With a name like Zigginfuse, I do normally like to check. So that, that's good. Amanda, would you mind just talking to us initially about your connection to DLD and then Anna, if you'd follow up, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so I think my connection with DLD started in my first job. Um, I was lucky enough to work in a borough that um, had some fantastic specialists in the area of DLD and we had really fantastic language units for primary and secondary. Um, And just to explain, a language unit is a mainstream school um, and attached to that school is a unit um, where children who have DRD can come for specialist um, support. So they'll have regular speech and language therapy and there's often a specialist teacher and specialist teaching assistants. And the children are in their mainstream classrooms for a lot of the day, but do come out for extra interventions and some lessons out of the classroom with a specialist teacher. Um, So I think having the opportunity to work in that environment was fantastic and I worked in mainstream schools and um, there was a real emphasis on assessing um, early and diagnosing in a timely manner at the time it was SLI uh, and ensuring that the right children were getting the extra support that they required and going to these language units if they needed to. And I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work in the secondary language unit um, for a while. Um, So that was for children who were aged 11 um, up to uh, 17, 18. Um, and they and we were doing a lot of functional skills work as well as working directly on language needs. And that was really interesting and really um, opened my eyes, I think, to the, to the impact that language difficulties could have on other areas of, of children's lives. And I think that's really what's, what sparked my interest. Um, and then from there, I went to work in um, a language unit but in a nursery and provided outreach support to other young children with DLD and worked in a primary language unit. So just kept building my knowledge. And I think always when working with children with DLD, I was working with a fantastic team. And um, it seems that it's always a, a supportive and um, collaborative um type of speech and language therapist that works with children with DLD and always trying to work together to try and improve things and I think that opportunity to work with such a fantastic passionate team as well as with such um, amazing children really just just kept me going and just that was really what what um, I love about DLD. Um, I then had the opportunity to work in Hackney with Stephen Parsons, who I know has done another one of your podcasts talking about vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Um, And he really is a real advocate for DLD. I learned a lot from him um, and our other wonderful um, manager, Annabelle Burns. And there was also a fantastic uh, lead of the mainstream service, Sarah Nash, who I think now now is working back in Australia, but all with a real passion for DLD. Mm -hmm. And I think working together, we were really able to... um, 
improve services for children with DRD. And, and when the label changed from SLI to developmental anguish disorder, we were, we were leading the way in, in, in how to um, incorporate that, that uh, new term um, in, into, the, into the work that we were doing. Um, so yeah, I think that's my connection to DRD really. Mm -hmm. It's having worked with passionate speech and language therapists and really getting a buzz out of working with such fantastic children and knowing you can support not only their language, but supporting them in so many other ways too. Mm, long history. And I love the fact that you've had um, experiences with all ages, you know, from very, for very young children. I always talk about, you know, the, the differences in needs across the age ranges changes so significantly. Um, and we'll talk about adolescence in, in just a minute. A Anna, tell us about your connection to DLD. Yeah, so fairly similar to Amanda's in lots of ways. I started out working in mainstream schools um, and in early years as well. And the more children I worked with DLD, the more I felt like this was a real area of interest. Uh, and I started working in a language unit in Hackney as well. So um, Amanda and I were in the same team for a long time. Uh, and I really enjoyed the opportunity to work more intensively with those students. Um, and then recently I took over leading on the development of DLD within um, our, our trust, our local team. So that involves, as well as the clinical work with um, children in the, the language unit and in mainstream schools, also a lot of supporting other therapists in the team to, to diagnose DLD, to provide support to children and young people with DLD. Um, and I really enjoy all aspects of, um, of that work. I also recently did a research master's in which I looked at um, how language disorder might affect interactions within the youth justice setting as well. Lots of experience. I think that that's the thing that I'm finding more and more talking to people is it's often through work like at the language units, for example, or in my case, working in a school for children with DLD, you know, we start to see that real need, but also the impact. And I think that both of you have talked about, you know, that role that we have in supporting young people being so important. Well, you've introduced yourselves and talked to us about how you've met, which is obviously in a workplace capacity, but I'd love to congratulate you because you're also authors of the book DLD and Me, which was released last year. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Um, you know, who was it for? Why did you write it? Uh, what sorts of things were you hoping it would cover for people? Uh, thank you, Sean. Um, we're really, really proud of it. <laughs> um, so, well, essentially, it's a, a book and a program to support children and young people who have DLD to learn about what DLD is, uh, how it affects their lives and how it impacts upon them, and to situate that in a broader context of, of who they are as an individual. It came about, um, Amanda and I were both working in, in the language units, and we were finding that the children we worked with, you know, they been coming often for years to speech and language therapy. They'd come out of their, their classes, they'd come and see us, we'd work with them in the classrooms. Um, and we spent, you know, hours upon hours working on grammar or narrative and vocabulary. But actually, there was a bit of a gap in terms of talking about why they came to see us, often because they'd been coming for so long, it was sort of a given for them. Um, but that didn't mean they weren't thinking about well you know why why is it that I come out of class or that you know Anna comes to see me in class and, and not not my friends um, and that had just never really been addressed explicitly um, and these were students who were sort of 9, 10, 11 and, and we really felt like 
it was a bit of an elephant in the room. You know, everybody knew they, they came out to see us and we worked on language, but we weren't really talking about it. And um, so we thought that we wanted to help have these conversations with our students about why they came to see us and what their language needs were. Um, and so we looked for whether there are any resources out there, um, any sort of programs to help us walk them through that. So there are things for um, conditions like autism. There's the, the fantastic I Am Special program that um, does something similar. But we couldn't really find anything for DLD. So we decided to make it ourselves. So we prepared the program. We, we ran it with the, the students we worked with. Um, and then we approached a publisher because we felt like it was something that a lot more people benefit from. Um, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, who we think it's for and a bit more about what the, the resource covers. Um, so as Anna said, um, you know, around the age of 9, 10, 11, children are starting to become aware. But I think uh, we'll talk about this a, a bit more later, but um, it really depends on the, the child and when they are starting to become a, um, aware of their needs. Uh, generally, we would say it's, um, our resource is suitable for children who are, are around 10 years old up to about um, 16. Um, but very much it's based on is the child ready? You know, some nine year olds are very aware of their needs and they, they it would be really helpful for them to understand that they have developmental language disorder. And some 11, 12 year olds uh, are quite oblivious and quite happy and not yet ready to learn about their, their diagnosis. And that's fine, too. So it, it's really um, whenever you feel the child is, is ready. Um, but generally it's for um, older age, older primary age children and moving into secondary schools. Um, and then um, Anna's given you a lovely overview of what it covers, but just to give a, a bit more detail. Um, so it's a it's a 12 week program. Um, the beginning of the program um, covers all about me, uh, which covers things like your outside, your inside and visible and invisible differences and difficulties. Um, and we cover this first because we think it's really important for um, our children and young people just to start thinking more generally about how we are the same, how we're different. And that starts on, on the outside. You know, I have brown hair and Anna has blonde hair and starting to think just very generally about how we're the same and different. And then moving to our inside. Now, what's nice about this section is we really start to cover the children's strengths very early. And we then use that the whole way through the program, keep going back to that, the things that they're good at. Um, this covers hobbies, what you like to do in your spare time, what you think you're good at, um, how that's the same to the other people, how that's different. Again, thinking about how we're all individuals and we're unique. Um, and then we talk about visible and invisible difficulties. So thinking about well, you can see, tell when, when people can't see very well because they're wearing glasses or if someone can't walk very well because perhaps they're in a wheelchair or they have a walking stick. But sometimes difficulties can't be seen, they're hidden. So someone who has difficulties with maths, you wouldn't know to look at them or someone who finds um, talking difficult, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know to look at them. So we start, start to, to think about that some difficulties are hidden. And we're talking at this stage, normalizing those difficulties, that everyone has things that they find difficult and uh, starting to think that, OK, we have glasses to help us when we can see and we have um, uh, a walking stick to help us to walk. But what do we use if we really um, find organizing ourselves difficult and um, what do we do to make sure that we get to places on time? We might have a diary and a, uh, or a watch and um, or a calculator if we find 
maths difficult. So already starting to think about strategies that we use to help ourselves with our difficulties, but really starting to increase awareness of difficulties and that some are not always obvious on the outside. The next section covers communication and language because Anna and I realized to try and talk about developmental language disorder without an understanding of, of what language is, is quite tricky. So we cover nonverbal communication and different ways that we can communicate. Uh, again, so some of those can be used when we think about strategies um, for supporting children with DLD and other ways you can share and communicate with, with people if, if talking is hard. Um, and then we cover language in, in more detail on what that means. Uh, and then our third section is around understanding developmental language disorder, what the term means, and then also thinking about the impact that it has on other areas of that young person's life. This is very individual. We cover lots of areas that it could cover and really get them to think about what impact it has for them. And throughout, we're always going back to their strengths and thinking about things that they're good at, as well as talking about things that are tricky um, and, and sharing videos and things like that that show you're not alone and that there are others who have DRD. And there's lots of information out there on the on the web about developmental language disorder. So although this term is is new to you, that actually um, um, you're not alone, which we think is a really important um Thing to think about, especially when the term developmental language disorder is so new and um, awareness is still quite low. And, um, we're trying our best to, to increase that. Um, and then a the final area is around developing um, supportive strategies and self-advocacy skills. So um, giving the young people strategies to support their understanding and their, their talking and um, the young people try them out and then come up with a toolkit of what ones they think will work for them. Um, and then there's some role play about how you might tell others about DRD and what that initial conversation might look like and how they might respond and what if it's a way you're not expecting and how you respond to that. So a lot of role play and thinking about how would you tell people, do you want to do it in a letter or are you going to do it verbally and, and, and chatting through all of that. And then the final final um, session is, well, let's create something to tell others about DRD. So it might be a letter or it might be um, a video. Um, it, it might be um, a role play that you want to show your head teacher. And so coming up with lots, lots of different ways that you could raise awareness and start to advocate for yourself and tell others that you have DLD. Um, but throughout the intervention, there are session plans, there's resources, and really important for us is home activities because we think those open communications with, the, with family is so important. And we want the young people starting to talk about developmental language disorder at home with their family and their family to have the confidence to, to talk about it and think about how they um, can support their child. So we're hoping that a lot of the activities, the home activities, and allow that opening um, in a way that otherwise it might be tricky to have some of those conversations. Um, the intervention also has information for teachers um, and um, there's a PowerPoint for, for parents at the beginning so that they can come to a meeting with a speech and language therapist to find out more about the programme before it starts. Um, so hopefully something that people can kind of pick up and run with. It can be run um, in schools. It can be run by a speech therapist. We've had parents contact us because they'd like to do it one to one with their child. Um, so, yes, I think to try and save people reinventing the real wheel, really, and so mm. people can, can pick things from it if they'd like to or use the whole intervention. It's just ideas um, people can try out. Fantastic. And I love um, the whole way through from what you said is that it, despite having 
needs that we're still focused on their strengths. And I think that it's very easy for particularly young people as they're developing their identity, transitioning into adolescence and then being an adolescent to really find the fact that they've got something, you know, going on for them, such a big challenge, but that they do have these um, areas that, you know, they are succeeding in and they are doing well. I think I've used this example on the podcast. So apologies, listeners, if I have used it one, but I've, I've got a young man that I work with last year who I diagnosed with DLD after failing um, most of his subjects in year, in, in sec senior secondary school. And, um, you know, we went through what a diagnosis of DLD was. And he said, you know, why me? Why this? Why that? You know, and then, but this is a young man who's also an elite athlete. And so we happened to work on a main road and I said, oh, look, you know, if we were to go out and run on the main road, you would probably fall into fits of laughter watching me as I tried to run 100 metres down the road. Because for those of you who haven't seen me, running is not my forte. Um, uh, but for him, it would be something that he'd exceed at, you know, and he was, you know, successful at basketball and um and athletics and all of these other things. So you know, not to let one aspect, even though communication is so important, is to identify all aspects or, or to, um, you know, cloud your perspectives around who you are as an individual. So I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. I think what we'll do, sorry, Anna, I, I think what we'll do is we'll pop a link into the podcast um, notes so that if people are interested in it, in potentially looking further into the DLD and me resource, they'd be able to actually go through to the um, to the website. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Perfect. Wait. Sorry, Anna, you were about to say something. No, I was just going to follow up from what you were saying. That yeah, that was really important to us that throughout that focus on strengths was there, so that it was always DLD is only a part of who you are. This you know mm. you're so much more than mm. this. Um, so that example illustrates that perfectly. Hmm. And it's something that, you know, DLD is, um, you know, something that people will have difficulties in some areas, but they'll have strengths in other areas. And I've, I'm yet to meet a person where we couldn't identify something that they were doing well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we'll see. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you today because one of the things that we get asked most frequently is from families who are really grappling with how to start talking about DLD with their child. Um, so in my clinical work, I'm, I'm asked very frequently, you know, should I tell our child that they have DLD? If I should tell them, then when is a good age or time to actually start having the conversation? So I'm going to open up this to you. I'd love to hear how might you respond to these questions that families are asking? So I think that it's important to say that families are going to be the ones that know best. They will know their child best and they will have a good sense often of whether it is the right time to start talk, having these conversations. Um, in my opinion, I think that generally young people do have a right to know about um, a diagnosis that's been made you know, about them. It's, it's their, their life, their communication. Um, and once they have that knowledge, I think it gives them more agency and more empowerment to be able to actively take part in the conversations that happen about their, their education, their, their provision, um, and just lets them have more input into 
the support that they receive and also allows them to connect with other young people who have DLD if that's something that they want to do. Um, but having said that, it, it is really important to to do it in the right way and at the right time. Um, as Amanda alluded to earlier, I don't think there's a, a definite rule for the age that you should tell a child or a young person. Um, we found that maturity is more uh, important than age and just whether whether a young person is ready for that. Um, it might be that you notice your child starting to sort of ask questions like, well, you know, why am I um, different or why do I struggle with um, my work at school when, when my friends don't or um, why am I getting the extra help in school? And if they are starting to ask those questions and that might be a good sign that it's time to start talking about DLD and, and the language difficulties that they have. Um, but even if they aren't asking those questions, that doesn't mean that they aren't thinking about it. As I said earlier, it can be a bit of an elephant in the room. And I think sometimes children and young people feel like because nobody else is bringing it up, maybe they shouldn't. Um, but actually, they might still it might still be on their minds. Um, if you're unsure or if your child is quite young, I would suggest it can be useful to just talk in more general terms about um, difficulties and language difficulties in particular to try and normalize it and and perhaps you know model um, the difficulties that you yourself have um, like oh you know gosh I'm I'm always forgetting to um, to pick up what we need from the shops organization isn't really my strong point so just really showing that it's very normal to have areas that you're good at and things that you really struggle with um, and talking in yeah, those general terms about language for that. Um, Amanda, I don't know what, if you want to add anything to that. Um, I totally agree with everything you said, Anna, absolutely. I think the only other thing um, to add was I read a very interesting article. Uh, it was a longitudinal study um, looking at depressive symptoms um, and emotional regulation strategies in, in children with and without DLD. Um, and actually, it was very interesting. It talked about um, actually children who distract themselves or trivialize a situation had lower levels of uh, depressive symptoms. So actually, I think that's telling us actually if a child is, isn't aware, is doing very well at trivializing their difficulties, actually, that's OK. Um, and um, while they're um, at that stage, we should it might not be suitable to be talking about developmental language disorder. and um, it's fine for, for them to distract themselves from it and trivialize it and not to be too concerned with it. I think this article also shows us though that when children and young people are starting to become aware, it's really important that we do um, start to have those conversations because they can have, there can be difficulties regulating our emotions. And we know that children with DLD can have difficulties putting into words um, how they're feeling and, and, and using emotional vocabulary. So actually, and starting to have those conversations really important when you feel the time is right. Um, we must make sure that we're supporting our child, children's emotional well-being as well so that we can support their mental health. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely the parent I think will know best when when is the when is the right time. But there's no harm in broaching those just conversations very lightly around what's difficult and that's okay and you're so good at all these things um, to keep keep things light initially perhaps and and follow your child's lead absolutely i think that i've had 
I'm trying to think of all of the conversations over the last however many years. Um, and they've ranged from, I don't want you to ever mention this term in front of my child. Uh, as parents of a course going through understanding what DLD is through to having the conversation with the child, you know, particularly adolescents themselves and the parents simultaneously and help and helping them through sort of as a, as a family unit, that conversation as well. So, you know, uh, I, I had one parent give me the analogy where they felt like they were the piano teacher that was one lesson ahead of the student, you know, that they were for everything that they were learning about DLT, you know, they were trying to keep that one step ahead while their child was having the lived experience. So, you know, they were constantly just trying to stay that little bit ahead, which meant it felt a little bit more like a marathon sometimes where they're trying to acquire and, and maintain new information as their young person changes and grows and develops. So I think that, um, you know, what we're sort of saying in summary is that it's really a, a family decision when it's best, but it's really important that we do acknowledge the fact that people deserve to know that they may have this label and that there's things that we can actually do to support and help. And by having that awareness, we can actually do something about it. And I love um, one point I didn't pick up on earlier was your point around self-advocacy. You know, I often will say that one of the very first strategies we work on is working out, identifying when you haven't understood and asking for help as the sort of if we can have nothing else around self-advocacy, you don't have to stand on stage and orate around what it's like to have DLD. But if you can say to your teacher, I have no idea what's just happened. Can you please clarify or have a signal to, you know, to um, represent that? Then that's actually a huge step towards self-advocating in the classroom. So one of the benefits to terminology such as DLD you know, is that, you know, we can do something about it. But there is also some stigma that can come in. I mean, there's terms like disorder and disability and there's um, connotations that exist within the general population around these terms. What might families actually need to think about when preparing for conversations with their children with DLD? So I think when um, we're talking uh, to young people about, about DLD, actually to understand all the areas that might be an area for stigmatization actually isn't a bad thing and actually to be aware of that before those conversations can really help to then have a guided conversation with with your child i think uh, not all but lots of adolescents uh, want to fit in and blend in so to be giving them a label where that might make them feel different actually is not something potentially that they want to know about so i think to be aware of that means that when you're talking to them you're really focusing on their strengths normalizing those difficulties throughout your conversations can really can really help there's been some debate and research too about whether we should be giving labels or, or not and you know um, some children young people may feel that it's localizing the problem in themselves um, and that it's their problem or um, they may start to lower expectations of themselves things like that have, have come up as possible areas um, oh well I'm going to find this difficult so do I need to, to try at it? Um, so I think just to be aware that, that these might be might be feelings and thoughts that come up can be helpful. Um, but it's always really important to um, acknowledge those emotions, I think, um, um, 
be aware that it could be difficult to regulate negative emotions that you might have, that the child or young person might have around, around the label um, so that you can support with those emotions. Um, and when talking about it, I think, as you've already said, Sean, being being a step ahead is really helpful. It's hard work for the parent, but actually to have more knowledge than, than your child is, is really helpful, and really important when so you can have clear conversations about what DLD is. Um, there are loads of fantastic uh, videos on the Raddled um, website on YouTube um, so that your child can learn from others who have DLD um, and um, realise that they're, they're not alone. I think the fact that the RD label isn't isn't very well known about can in itself be quite isolating. Um, so I think some of those videos can be really helpful. Actually, there's a lovely one. It's um, a, a UK video from a, a girl called Lily, who actually says when I when she found out she was angry because teachers had always been telling her off her whole life for not paying attention. So actually, to have ha to have that label gave her answers. Um, so labels actually can be can be can be a real positive um, and can be part of a person's identity um, and um, actually um, having an identity gives you a sense of belonging and it can be an important determinant of well-being. So I think it's more about how the environment and um, is is thinking about labels. Actually, we always um, Go jump to oh you've got a diagnosis of this this must mean x y and z is difficult but actually how about instead it's you've got developmental language disorder oh maybe that means that you're fanta a fantastic athlete as you said Sean or very creative or can build fantastic models and you're brilliant at, at, at Lego for example and um and how you can how your how your brain can work in other ways um actually makes you see the world in in a different way that and that can make you special unique um and be part of um your identity but in a positive way um lily's video is definitely a go-to i think for many mm -hmm. um clinicians and 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 people all around the world i actually just showed lily's video to a um adolescent just recently and he was able to go through and say that bits me that bits me that bits not me but I get why that would be a problem, <laughs> you know? So yeah. he was able to actually go through and, I, you know, we had just been discussing the fact that just because you've got a label doesn't mean that everybody with the label has the same needs. And he found that really fascinating that somebody could, you know, he said, oh, so we're all still different. It doesn't mean that we're all kind of carbon copies of each other. I was like, no, not at all. In fact, um, you know, we were able to isolate things that he could do really well. Uh, and then the things that he found more challenging could build the strategies and supports around it. But he, the, Lily's video, again, I'm sure we could link this through to the, um, the notes for the podcast, but I think has been hugely influential. And of course, Lily's then gone on and collaborated to create the adults with DLD um, uh, video that was released last year, which has also been um, very well received, I feel, by you know, people all around the world. I think um, Lily's video as well really just highlights the the risks and the stigma that can come about from not using terminology actually because in the absence of terminology that it was filled by assumptions about her you know her attention her motivation and those are far more stigmatizing in, in lots of ways than um, a label or terminology which people can can research and can understand what might be behind the behaviours that um, you see on the surface. So, yes, yeah, huge thanks to Lily for doing that. Amazing. 
clearly part of this is that, you know, we've talked about having a conversation, but really one conversation's not really going to be enough. So we're talking about, I guess, an ongoing process with our families and with children, because, you know, if we all thought that we could just say it once and it was done, we'd probably do that for lots of things, but we know that that's probably not going to be the case. Tell me, how can families continue to support their child in developing their understanding about what DLD is once they've had that initial conversation around a diagnosis? How can families support their person with DLD to then grow in that confidence and self-efficacy around their diagnosis? Um, because, you know, we've talked about diagnosis, but it's only just the very beginning. I was really interested in that um, piano teacher analogy that one of your parents um, used of, sort of feeling the need to stay one step ahead. Um, and in some ways, I think that actually one way to, to approach that ongoing conversation about DLD is to not feel like you as the parent or um, the clinician have to have all the answers about it. Actually, if together you approach it more as a, a learning journey for the both of you, because um, as you said, DLD is, is different for every everybody that has it. So it's not that um, the, the parent or the clinician can just impart all the knowledge. It's actually really got to be us listening to the young person about what DLD is for them. So it's not going to be completely parent-led. I think actually a lot of the time it can be really empowering and really important for the young person to take the lead in, in learning more about DLD and perhaps conveying that information back to their families, to their to their friends, to their, their schools and their teachers. Um, because it's, yeah, it's a learning journey for, for everybody, I think. And if it's approached in that spirit, I think it can help the young person to feel more confident that this is something they can take forward and self-advocate um, for themselves and not be reliant on other people. Um, so I think as well as, you know, researching more about DLD themselves and um, our website has some information written in language, which is hopefully accessible for, for young people um, to do that. So as well as researching DLD, it might mean them participating or at least looking at all the DLD Awareness Day activities that go on, which I think are so inspiring and, and can really help you feel there is that sense of community out there that you're not alone in having DLD. Um, and perhaps also when difficulties do come up, problem solving them with your uh, with your child together so not being expected to provide the answers but thinking together about okay well you know this has happened how can we do it um, and I think as well perhaps helping them to prepare for conversations that might come up so we just talked about the potential stigma that um, might arise and you know it's it's likely that a young person is going to get questions about what DLD is from others. So I think practicing some of those conversations and maybe even role playing them, thinking through possible ways to respond um, could be a, a really helpful way for parents and families to support their, their child to grow with confidence. Um, you know, and also it can be helpful to practice telling other people that you have DLD in the first place. Um, so that could be one way. I've got a couple of thoughts. I'm trying to organise them in my head to see what makes most sense. But one of the things that I will say is we've got an amazing youth ambassador, you know, young man with DLD advocating in, in Australia. And one of the activities that that they've organised is a bit of Parker, you may have seen, and um, who's done a podcast with us in the past and has been really great at supporting you know, the awareness raising here in Australia. But Parker's uh, and his mum are organising a... Um, 
a bridge climb over one of the uh, locations that's lighting up purple and yellow for DLD Awareness Day this year as a way of bringing together not just people from an advocacy perspective, but actually getting some adolescents together so that like seeing that there, you know, are other people that have DLD is a part of that as well. But I just think, you know, a great initiative. Um, and my second thought is that talking about all of this reminds me so much of the fact that at the end of the day, they're the ones with DLD, you know, they've got the lived experience. I don't have DLD, so I don't know what it's yeah. like to live. You know, I can, I can spend my whole career working with these amazing people, but I don't have it. So it's part of the almost co-design process, isn't it, that we listen to and actually facilitate the opportunity for them to have a say. And I've just recently shared some research by the wonderful Hayley Tancredi, who um, had did some uh, research in her master's of research. And I love this quote, I've used it just recently on social media, but I'm gonna read it because I think it's great. Um, where in her paper last year, she said, listening to students with language difficulties and responding to their insights can transform the way teachers think about their teaching for all students. And I think, there's some insights that these people have with DLD that we really want to unlock because at the end of the day, I mean, I can't presume to know how to do everything to support these young people and that they're the ones at the end of the day that are developing the strategies and skills. So I love, sorry, I'm getting very excited. I get very animated when we talk about these sorts of topics. Um, Amanda, were you about to say something before I cut you off earlier? Oh, no, no, it's fine. Um, I was just thinking that the impact changes over time. So actually, I think these conversations never end. And actually, exactly. there'll always be um, just time to explore with your with your child, what impact is it having and for your mm. child to really understand what mm. impact it's having for them so that they can then advocate for themselves and um, uh, get the support that they need um, in school. Um, and I think building that confidence and building self-efficacy skills and um, self-advocacy skills are really important for, for mental health and, and well-being. So um, um, focusing on strengths, activities that, that, build those, that build those strengths out of school so that learning isn't what, this, what everything is about, but actually there are those opportunities to, to really practice and, and keep progressing at the things that they're already good at it is so important. Um, and an opportunity to role play um, areas of their life that might be difficult, but where um, independent, so, so we can allow our, uh, our young people to be independent, you know, how to um, use the bus or the train or uh, go to the cinema or um, you're in a shop or a cafe and to role play some of that and, and also what might go wrong if the bus breaks down, what do you do? So that our young people can go out and be independent, um, which is so important for, for life and, and, and having a good quality of life. School is only part, like I keep coming back to, school is only part of the process and actually school has got one of the highest language loading experiences. Some people may be go going all right but in primary school, but moving to secondary school where all of a sudden the, you know, prerequisite, you know, reading, writing, but also the language needs, including vocabulary, for example, becomes so, um, I don't know, so challenging that it actually can exacerbate these needs. But what I often see is as soon as we can transition out of high school and into an occupation potentially of their own choosing that matches those things that we've talked about, which is their interests and their um, things that they enjoy doing or, um, you know, their strengths, that actually 
we can see these adolescents, you know, when supported through, because actually in the environment that suits them, whereas school as a system is often really hard to change to suit everybody that's existing within that, that environment. I did a mapping activity many years ago where we were looking at what does a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old and a 25-year-old need with DLD? Because of course they're very different. And so, you know, looking at early language enrichment and strategies that then transition into, you know, school-based learning strategies and that transition into 15-year-olds around what we need in high school as we transition into adulthood and that 20 years is kind of that transitioning out of school and 25 is where we're sort of establishing some employment, career, whatever it might be. And there's this huge change in language loading essentially across that um, very relatively short period of time. I'm talking 20 years out of somebody's whole life and they can be very successful in some instances and struggle significantly in other instances so um i think but at the center of it if we understand that this is what we have and we can do something about it we're better prepared aren't we at the end of the day yeah. very conscious of time and i think that i'll move on to our next question which is we've spoken a lot about families and what i love about our podcast is the fact that We've got clinicians and, and teachers and families who all listen in and all provide wonderful feedback. And a lot of what we've talked about is families, and but clinicians and educators obviously play a really important role in supporting families. So what do you would we recommend for clinicians who might be helping families who are having some of these perhaps initial diagnostic conversations, but also those ongoing conversations um, over potentially weeks, months or years? What might they be able to do? Um, I think having more than one conversation is really important because when you're talking to um, a family and you're sharing the information about uh, a, the diagnosis of developmental language disorder, it's a lot of information to take in and take on board. So actually, I think for clinicians to, to be aware that um, you'll probably need to have more than one conversation with, with the family and and to support throughout um, their journey, I think it is really important. Um, I think um, from my experience, providing the diagnosis in a letter can be really helpful. I think um, uh, we, we generally write reports which are, are very detailed and provide really important information about a whole uh, range of, of areas and the needs and strengths in that whole range of areas. But actually to have a letter that says um, that this young person has a diagnosis of developmental language disorder which means X and here are a few strategies that might help on one page can be really helpful for that family then sharing with other professionals and with school because schools are busy places. They don't have a lot of time to, to read through a report in a lot of detail. So to be able to have one page with all the information they need can actually be really helpful, I think, for, for families. Um, I think when we're talking to families, just to make sure that we're providing information about where they can go for more support and more information, um, making sure we provide information in writing uh, about what DRD is. Um, and then I think as you go on to work with that family, it's all about open communication, working together, discussing together who, who is the best person to have those initial conversations with the child about the diagnosis or um, um, thinking together about functional and life skills and what impacts the family sees at home and how you can support with those areas as well as with language. Um, and then potentially you'll be the person seeing that child at school. So you may be the main person advocating for that young person or child in the school setting. So um, it's um, 
uh, an important responsibility, I think, for that clinician. For families that are wanting to start talking to their child about having DLD, I think um, the speech language therapist or pathologist still has a really important role to play um, in supporting them have, having those conversations. So I think it could be useful um, for clinicians to, to meet with the family maybe and have a give them the chance to ask any questions they might have about DLD so they ensure that they understand it themselves um, thinking back again to that that piano teacher analogy making sure they they feel confident in their own knowledge about DLD um, before they start talking to their, their child or young person about it um, I think it can also be really helpful if the families want to uh, suggest linking up with other families who have maybe also gone through the same journey. It can be quite isolating um, having uh, a child or young person with DLD because there isn't as much public awareness about it and you might not know another family going through the same thing. So if everybody was in agreement that could be a really beneficial thing. Um, and clinicians if, if they're trained could also think about using an approach like solution focused brief therapy to help structure those conversations with parents to help them clarify what is it that they would like to um, get out of having that conversation with their child where would they like it to go how would they um, how would they like it to to unfold so I think there are lots of things that clinicians could do to support families with those conversations absolutely I'll put in a little plug here because these are topics that we know come up time and time again and at the DLD project we've actually developed some tools that might help with some of the things that you've mentioned one of which is we actually have a free 30 minute um, family guide to understanding a diagnosis of DLD which is really just as soon as we get that it's really just targeting at as soon as a family receives the diagnosis and some of those points that you've brought up Anna were all covered you know in that um, particular presentation so I do often say to um, clinicians you know that is a freely available resource you know, if you don't want to reinvent the wheel and then Amanda you talked about having things on a one-page sheet well we have an editable get to know me a for um, one pager where families can look at what their child's strengths and their goals are and what their aspirations are so that they can actually give that uh, and that's uh, to their school or it might be to their swimming teacher or their hockey coach, whoever it is that they can um, help explain what it is that their child is needing support with, but also doing really well. And there's a little bit of information in a very, you know, I'd say a, a parent friendly sort of way around what DLD is on the back. So there is a couple of resources if families are listening and particularly interested in something quick that they can utilize, um, that's there for them as well. Based on Rachel, yeah. Uh, so we're slowly we're coming to an end. I, I promise we're getting there, guys. <laughs> so what I'd love to know is, in your opinion, what do you hope to see for the future of DLD in the UK and or and or around the world? It might be from a research perspective, or in your clinical work, or service delivery models. What what what's your thoughts and I guess you know dreams for the future? Uh, I think for me, it's um, for it to be as well known as other conditions such as, as such as ASD, um, so that um, everybody it has uh, increased awareness and understands what it is, and there isn't this feeling of isolation because actually it's very well it's very well known. I think that would be just wonderful, and I think is what we're always aiming for when we're we're raising awareness and. Uh, trying to support young people to raise awareness and tell others about their DLD. I think 
if all speech and language therapists had the, the knowledge and the confidence in how to recognize the red flags of for DLD and diagnose DLD in a timely manner would be just wonderful. And I think my hope is that if there is this increased awareness and increased diagnosis, then actually classrooms would be better set up. We'd have communication friendly classrooms and we'd be starting to break down some of those barriers so that our young people really have the opportunities to be the best that they can be in, in all environments. Sounds wonderful. I love it. <laughs> How about you, Anna? Yeah, I think I would echo a lot of what Amanda said. I think for me, a lot of it really comes down to getting that consistency and rate of diagnosis of DLD improved. I think without that, it's very hard to have progress in all those other areas of, you know, excellent provision, consistent provision. If people just aren't being told what, um, you know, therapists and pathologists might be suspecting, you know, we, it, it can't just be something we keep to ourselves. Um, it's got to be something that is diagnosed and got out there. But having said that, you know, I recognise it's not easy. So I think what we also need is the support for clinicians to do that. And um, so support in uh, making the diagnosis, but also in communicating it. You know, it's it's not something that we get a lot of training in, you know, communicating a, a diagnosis of a potentially disabling condition. And that's, it's not a, an easy thing to do. So I think some more support for that. And um, there is some, are some fantastic resources already out there, like the, the DLD Diagnostic Toolbox um, from Lisa Archibald, which I think you might have contributed to as well, Sean. I think more things like that to support clinicians in, and communicating and making a diagnosis of DLD is going to be all for the good. Absolutely. And I think that we keep saying increasing diagnosis, but it's not that we're saying more people need to be, you know, above the prevalence. We're saying these people are out there and they're just not identified. Exactly. And I think exactly. that that point, um, you know, we really want people to know there's so many people I look back over my pre-speech pathology life and which you know it's now almost becoming equal nowadays um but my i think about these people particularly people i went to school with that i really resonate with they would have had dld and they had no idea that they were struggling in school particularly with learning um socializing all of these things that were they were finding really difficult and they had no idea i, I suspect they had no idea because to my knowledge they weren't receiving supports or you know, push in, pull out services, anything. And yet they were sort of struggling along to the finish line. And these are people that look back at school and, and hated it. You know, and I, I say, you like school, we don't want you to hate school. Schools are part of the process to get you prepared and ready for whatever it is you, of your choosing as an adult. But, you know, I, there's all of these people that I think back now and think, my goodness, that was unnecessarily hard. Why didn't we do something so that you better understood, which is why I think particularly for us, uh, I'm putting my rattled hat on here, uh, rattled our theme of Think Language, Think DLD this year is so important because we want to reach as many, I'd, I'd even be ambitious enough to say every educator, but as many educators as we can as a part of our campaign so that if you see a child with needs, think language and think it might actually be DLD because at the moment it's often everything but. And so if you don't know, what can we do? Exactly. So much to do. As we're drawing to a close, I have one more question for both of you. And at the DLD project, we're really focused on self-care and finding time to breathe in very busy days. What do you both do to look after yourselves? 
So it's um, definitely tricky at the moment. I've got a, a five-month-old baby, so um, time for myself is scarce. But when I do get it, um, I like to read or do some yoga. Um, and I've recently, with my partner, started to try and understand cryptic crosswords and try and do those. It's not going very well so far, but um, we'll keep trying. <laughs> I love it. I am, um, yeah, crosswords are not my forte. <laughs> How about you, Amanda? Um this might sound a bit cheesy, but I think to have a job that's not just a job, but a passion really helps. Um, but also, I think you're right to have time for you is really important. And um, I enjoy doing Pilates and, and going for walks and just getting some fresh air, I think, can uh, really help. Just have a, a, a small something for me um, in a busy day, I think is really important. Well, I think I just wanted to recap because there's been so much that we've talked about uh, so I guess I'd love to hear what some of your key points you'd love listeners to take away from today's chat so I, I think one is that learning about having DLD can be a really empowering experience yes there's can be stigma attached to labels but actually going through this process it can be an opportunity to really look at all your strengths as an individual as well and what makes you unique as a person and yeah and taking on um the ownership of that can be really, really positive for young people and that families and clinicians should feel confident that they can support their young person. They don't have to have all of the answers about DLD. They won't because it's, in, you know, it's individual for um, everybody who has DLD. So to approach it in that spirit of a journey of discovery um, and then, you know, it's something that you hand over with the, to the young person and, and they can choose what they want to do with that information and how they want to incorporate it into their life. But do feel confident to start those conversations. Don't feel scared. That's what I would really want to, to reiterate. Awesome. Thanks, Anna. How about you, Amanda? I think for me, it's um, just normalising those difficulties, focusing on those strengths, have open conversations when that time feels right, and ensure your child has the support to regulate their emotions when covering this tricky topic. Yeah, you're, you're there to help advocate for your child and to support them to be able to advocate for themselves so that they are able to, to grow and be confident adults. So um, I think that would be my, my key points to take away. But whilst we don't have that, we do have some amazing resources like DLD and me, which I know um, myself and many others use in their practice. So I do want to congratulate you again on publishing such a fantastic resource and um, really giving us the tools to help having start having some of these conversations and I really want to leave today's podcast by encouraging families to know that it's okay to have these conversations um, it's okay to feel worried or concerned but there's some great tools out there and if you're not sure you can always talk to a speech pathologist um, or speech and language therapist and um, start the ball rolling so thank you so much for your time Amanda and Anna it's been an absolute pleasure well, thank, thank you, you so very much for having sure. us it's thank been great you. Thank you, Anna, Amanda, and Sean, for that excellent episode of the Talking DLD podcast. You can grab a copy of the DLD and Me book. We've got the link in the article and the podcast post. Did you know the first International DLD Research Conference is coming up really quickly? It will be held on September 20 to 22. It's a virtual event. Tickets start from as little as 50 Australian dollars. 
And also, we have launched at the DLD Project our on-demand courses. You can now access all of our workshops on demand 24-7 from anywhere in the world. This includes diagnosing DLD with confidence, evidence-based interventions, planning therapy, and understanding a DLD diagnosis for families. Check it all out at thedldproject.com. Thanks so much for joining us.